This afternoon, I've been asked to continue with your regular treatment of the Catechism at Lord's Day 25. <clears throat> and before we get to reading the Catechism, we're going to read some scripture. We're reading from John 6, we're reading at 25 to the end of the chapter. The Lord Jesus has fed 5,000 and crossed over to the other side of the lake. We can read of him walking on the water, a well-known story. We pick up the narrative at verse 25. When the crowds found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He said, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he who has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for my life, for the life of the world, is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, this said to them, do you, know, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We turn to Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. After the Gospels and the book of Acts, we have Romans. Reading from Romans 6 at 1. The Apostle Paul speaking about the way of faith and death in Adam and life in Christ continues, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him and by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Then turning a few chapters forward in the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, we get to chapter 10 at verse 5. Reading to 15. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are pro that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not ever heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The word of God. 
Before we turn to the catechism, let's <clears throat> join together in praise with Psalm 147, 4 and 6. The regular treatment of the catechism, you come to Lord's Day 25. Lord's Day 23 and 24 dealt with justification by faith and the doctrine about good works. And it speaks of true faith, that we bring those who have true faith, unite us with Christ. Lord's Day 25 begins the part on word and sacraments. Since then, faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. Where does faith come from? From the Holy Spirit who works in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy visible signs and seals. They are instituted by God so that by their use we might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And this is the promise that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments are there? How many sacraments has Christ instituted in the new covenant? Two, holy baptism and holy supper. 
After the preaching, we'll sing in response uh, hymn 51, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved in the Lord, the church has been given the means of grace, the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments by the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church is to administer the means of grace faithfully. Ministers, your pastor, Pastor Rick Vanderhorst, is engaged in the administration of the gospel. And the church, the Reformed Church, has a high respect for preaching. Preaching and the sermon have a prominent and conspicuous role in the worship of the church. And the preacher is expected to work diligently and reverently and prayerfully with the biblical text, explaining words, illuminating meaning, and making the text of the scripture understandable. And he has to do this with startling clarity and mind-boggling profundity. And he has to strive to do this in a winsome way. Because preaching is the proclamation of God's word. The preacher's duty is to communicate the meaning of the text to God's people in a certain place, at a certain moment, in a certain situation. And when that's done faithfully, and when accompanied by the Spirit's presence and power, preaching is Christ's living voice to the church and to the world today. Christ, the ascended Lord, is really present in the preaching of the gospel. And so because Jesus Christ is really present in the preached word, the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts. And it's the preacher's duty to administer the sacraments. And the church teaches that the sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper, holy baptism and holy supper, point to the preached word. And we confess that Christ is really present in the sacraments. And so because Christ is really present in the sacraments, the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts and also strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. And we know what the Lord Jesus says about the Spirit, that we don't know where he comes from or where he goes, like the wind, John 3. And yet that Spirit is the Spirit that regenerates us. He's the one who brings new life to dead sinners, even like the Spirit did to the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. But how the Spirit does this brings to life that which is dead is not a magic trick. What God is doing in the hearts of sinners when they hear the preaching and share in the sacraments is amazing. What God is doing in the preaching and the use of the sacraments is amazing. But it's not magic. Rather, it's a miracle and a mystery. So let that be our theme today. Christ is really present, really present in the word and sacraments. It's not magic, but a miracle and a mystery. And we'll hear this afternoon about Christ in the preached word and Christ in the sacraments. So the first way that the Holy Spirit works is through the Word of God. Though through this Word, the Holy Spirit not only works faith in our hearts, He also strengthens it, faith, strengthens faith by the use of the sacraments. By the Gospel, the Spirit brings faith to maturity, gives us a better understanding of salvation. And through that same preached word calls us to more faithful service to the Lord. But all this implies that without the word, we would be lost. And this is the clear teaching of the scripture. 
Without the word of God, we would not know God. In ourselves, we do not love God, nor seek him. So it must be clear to us, first of all, right from the start this afternoon, that faith is a miracle. The fact that we believe in Jesus Christ at all is completely against our sinful nature. By nature, we confess we hate God. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That there is no escape, not for anyone, except for the way God plans. And that's the way of the Spirit. Men and women in themselves, young people, boys and girls in themselves, are unspiritual. Sinners have a tendency to turn off at the word of God. Naturally, there is no faith, no inclination to believe God nor to believe in him. Only God can make that happen. Faith is a miraculous gift of God. And God promises to work faith in his own. As Jesus said, the Father will draw to himself all those whom he will. So the Holy Spirit will work this miracle in the spiritually dead. And those who are dead will be made alive in Christ. The dead will be born again and begin to live in faith, faith in Jesus. And then we ask, how does the Holy Spirit do this? Now we have to be careful here this afternoon, for we are not going to limit the work of God. We cannot say, well, this is the only way in which God, the Holy Spirit, may work. Or this is the only way he can work. No, but we can repeat after Scripture that the way in which God reveals to us is the way the Holy Spirit normally works. So we're not going to limit God's freedom here. But we can confess what God has revealed to us, how he desires to work and how he does work faith in the hearts of his people. And by the means that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of his people is by his word. The gospel, the word of the cross is the power of God for salvation. And the Apostle Paul says the Holy Spirit works in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. Faith is worked in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. This is the means by which the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have chosen to form faith in us. Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes from the preaching of Christ. There's something very important here that we need to understand and, and resolve this afternoon. Something very important. Faith doesn't come from our experience. It does not come from some inner fountain of experience. Faith does not come from the meditative contemplation of the soul. Faith does not come from introspective thoughts. Faith comes from outside. Faith comes from what is heard in the preached word. So faithful preaching of the gospel from this pulpit by your pastor is something that's completely different from anything else. It's a unique thing. It's a one-of-a-kind thing. One-of-a-kind thing. Let's turn with me to the Canons of Dort. I'd like to read some of the Canons of Dort to you. Page 577 of your Book of Praise. 577. We're reading at the bottom right corner, Article 11, about how God brings about conversion. And we would say how God also brings about faith. 577, Article 11, how God brings about conversion. God carries out his good pleasure in the elect and works in them true conversion. 
in the following manner. He takes care that the gospel is preached to them and powerfully enlightens their mind by the Holy Spirit so that they might rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. By that efficacious, the effective working of the same regenerating spirit, he penetrates into the innermost recesses of man. He opens the closed and softens the hard heart, circumcises that which is uncircumcised, instills new qualities in the will, makes the will which was dead alive, which was bad good, which was unwilling willing, which was stubborn obedient, and moves and strengthens it so like a good tree it might be able to produce the fruit of good works. So he has the gospel preached so that these things will happen. The gospel preached so these things can happen. Article 12. This conversion is the regeneration, the new creation, the raising from the dead, the making alive. We would add the being born again, so highly spoken of in the scripture, which God works in us without us. But this regeneration is by no means brought about only by outward teaching. It's not just outward teaching. By moral persuasion, win an argument or something, or by such a mode of operation that after God has done his part, it remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not regenerated, converted or not converted. It is, however, clearly a supernatural, most powerful, and at the same time most delightful, marvelous, mysterious, and inexpressible work. According to the scripture inspired by the author of this work, regeneration is not inferior in power to creation or the raising of the dead. Hence, all those in whose hearts God works in this amazing way are certainly, unfailingly, and effectually regenerated and do actually believe. They have faith. And then the will so renewed is not only acted upon and moved by God, but acted upon by God, the will also acts. Therefore, man himself is rightly said to believe and repent through the grace he has received. Okay, so... God ensures that the word is preached and the spirit works with that word and transforms his own people. So we have to realize for this to happen, the word needs to be heard by us. And we must listen. It's true that we believe it's a miracle. But if you don't attend to the word of God, to the preaching, then no miracle will occur. When the Lord promises us that he will work faith by the preaching of the word, then we must see to it that we are there where the word is preached. Romans 10, we read that. Anyone who, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in the one of, of whom they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? We need to be, I need to be, you need to be, where the word of God is preached, where it is taught. There's a strange thing that happens, and I've heard it often. People, members of the church, resent the idea that faith comes from the preaching of the word. An idea hard to accept. How can that be, they ask? Why should it be from the preaching? The preaching in the church. Preaching, Paul says, is the primary means by which God's presence becomes real to us. It's the means by which God's work is accomplished in us. And in the community, <clears throat> some of the Reformed confessions even put it plainly that when the gospel is preached faithfully in the name of God, it is as if God himself speaks. That faithful preaching is the very word of God. Faithful preaching is the very voice of Jesus. Makes me tremble. Preaching is 
God's saving presence among his people. The miracle and the mystery lie in this, that God would use mere mortals, clay pots, frail men, sinners, to bring forth his word. As Paul would say, that is so that only God's glory is received by God and not by man. So on the one hand, human preaching, preaching is a very human labor. On the other hand, it's the very word of work of God. As Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the church heard Paul's words not just as the words of a man, but as the very word of God. So when preaching faithfully explains and applies the scripture, it comes with authority. Not authority of its own, but nevertheless, the authority based on the Bible. And Christ is truly present in that preaching through the operation of the Holy Spirit. So we might say preaching also has sacramental value. It's an outward vehicle bringing inward grace. Something happens to you and me. Something happens to you and me as we sit under faithful preaching. Therefore, preaching occupies the place of importance above private or public reading of of the scripture because the preacher speaks with authority. He not only reads the scripture, he explains its meaning. He's to teach what kind of response there should be. And he calls sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Preaching is more than mere reflection or meditation on what God has done. Preaching is not just information. It's not simply teaching what God has done in the past. Of course, preaching has to impart understanding of the Bible, and so must be preached in a way that is understandable by the hearer. But the Holy Spirit of Christ is the internal minister of the word who brings into effect the outward ministry of the preacher. And in doing so, communicates Christ to us in a way that's mysterious. In so doing, the canons, along with the scripture says, does it in a way that brings to life that which was dead, softens that which was hard, brings to obedience that which is rebellious, brings faith where there's unbelief. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, the risen Lord Jesus, the eternal Father, actually uses Sunday preaching to bring life to our dead souls. Where else would you want to be on Sunday morning or afternoon where that's happening? We live in a culture that doesn't accept authority, does not accept things on the word of others. Many want to do things their own way, and they think that this way must be wrong. And they will argue, church members will argue, that faith can come from reading the word and studying the word. But the strange thing is that as soon as the church community downplays the preaching, then the reading of the word and its studying often disappears. People who cannot accept the preaching, the authoritative preaching of a gospel preacher, of a pastor in a pulpit, as the means of grace and transformation, are actually not often against preaching, but against the word as a means of grace. A church that no longer holds preaching, the preaching of the word, as central in the congregation's life will soon not be a church at all. It's the preaching of the word that leads people to read, to study, to meditate, and reflect on the word of God. And so by the preaching, men and women, boys and girls, have faith worked in them by the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle of God's grace. It's not magic, but it's supernatural. It's delightful. It's marvelous. It's mysterious. 
and an expressible work. So we want to note specifically today and, and remember perhaps the, the lesson in the first point of this sermon, your, your takeaway, your take-home point today. When you listen to the preaching, we are not here just reflecting on what God in Christ has done for us in the past. No, rather, when you sit under faithful preaching, the Holy Spirit of Christ is present in that word and is doing something to you today. So not just reflecting on what God has done in the past, like the great-grandchildren of slaves might think of Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Declaration, something somebody did in the past, subjective reflection on some historical truth in the past. No, preaching is the means of grace by which God is doing something to us in the present, in the here and now. So, yes, something subjective. I reflect on God's grace and remember what he has done. The second, objective. I become the object of God's grace in whom God is effecting profound change in a miraculous and mysterious way. The living preaching of the word is the seed of regeneration, as Peter writes in his first letter, chapter 1 at 23 to 25. For you have been born again, not by perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory will like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Quoting Isaiah. And then Peter says, and this is the word that was preached to you. The preached word does something to you. It works a change in God's people as an objective reality. Okay, let's, let's, let's seize hold of that truth. What about the sacraments? What are they and how do they fit into this? Why does this sacrament come alongside the word of God? We can say because of the weakness of our faith. The Holy Spirit not only allows us to hear the gospel, to apprehend it in word, but he allows us to see it. And so the sacraments are signs and seals of the gospel of salvation. The reality of the gospel is presented to us before our eyes. So the preaching of the word produces faith. The sacraments do not. They don't produce faith. They strengthen faith that's there already. Faith brought about by the word. So there's a difference between word and sacrament. We say sacraments are for members of the church. The word is also for those outside the church. Uh, just to back up on preaching here for a moment. The preaching of the word of God always has effect. Thinking about those outside the church. Also inside the church. Preaching will either lead to faith or re and repentance, or it will cut the unbeliever off. I, I read an interesting analogy, one worth remembering. I thought so, anyways. Uh, people, some people are like wax, and some people are like clay. And the same sunshine warms them both. So you have a lump of clay and a lump of wax. The wax becomes soft and malleable and formable, and the clay becomes hard and brittle. So it is when the warm light of the Word of God shines on people. Some become soft and moldable. Others become hard and harden themselves. But the sacraments. We shouldn't think that the sacraments are less important or secondary to preaching. The sacraments are essential to the gospel working in us. We might say it's like a farmer who plants seed in his field and then he irrigates it. I was talking to a potato farmer in Carmen last week. <clears throat> Irrigation is necessary in the potato fields of southern Manitoba. Planting is of importance, but irrigation isn't less important. 
And just as in the preaching of the gospel something happens to us, so also in the sacraments something happens in us. The sacraments are not bare signs and seals. In theological language, in Latin, they are not non signa nuda. They are not naked signs, bare signs. They are real means of grace by which the Holy Spirit nourishes believers. Signs and seals of God's promise of salvation, they're made effective by God's Spirit who enlivens and nourishes those within the covenant community who are united to Jesus Christ. The Belgian Confession, please God to work faith in our hearts by the hearing of and the listening to the living preaching of God's word and the church through the ministry of fallible men. So we also confess that it pleases God to use earthly material, cleansing water, simple bread, refreshing wine. The means of grace coming to us in basin, bread, and beaker. And why does God give them to us? Answer 66 of the Catechism says, they were instituted by God so by their use he might more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. They were given by God in his compassion. He knows that we are dust. He knows our human frailty. Article 33 of the Belgian Confession, we read that God is mindful of our insensitivity and our infirmity. That God has added to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses, to sight, taste, touch, and smell both what he declares to us in his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts. Hearing is one sense. The sacraments, especially the Lord's Supper, is apprehended by the other senses. In this way, he confirms to us salvation which he grants to us. So the sacraments are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the work he does is the confirmation and strengthening of the faith worked in us by the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of the word. Catechism teacher once told me, sacraments are special measures and created and implemented for, by a loving teacher for slow learners. So the sacraments are not just a moment for us to reflect on what God has done in the past, in Christ. Some subjective reflection on some historical truth. No, in baptism and Lord's Supper, God is doing something to us. Baptism is not a bare sign, a signa nuda, a sign and nothing but a sign. In infant baptism, God says to the child, as well as in adult baptism, but especially in the child, God says, I claim you for my own. I love you. Don't you dare forsake me. When an army claims a fortress, they run their flag up the highest flagpole. It's not a bare sign signifying something else. But by the very fact that the planting of the flag, claims are made. Something objectively happens to the fortress. It comes under new management. When the royal standard flies over Buckingham Palace, it's not simply a sign that the queen's home. No, Buckingham Palace becomes the sovereign's residence. For the queen is not just a person, but in her the whole system of government of the commonwealth of nation rests. When the flag flies, the standard, the royal standard flies over Buckingham Palace, it's not just Elizabeth Windsor is at home. No, the palace becomes the, the seat of the sovereignty of the throne. 
Or another example, maybe you know that famous photograph from World War II, later turned into a U.S. Marine Corps War Memorial, the famous photo of four American Marines planting a flag on the mountain of Iwo Jima in the South Pacific. When that flag was planted, something objectively happened to the island. It came under new management. The Japanese have been defeated. The Americans liberated the island. It's not a bare sign. The flag itself was the objective reality that something dramatic had happened. As the Belgian Confession says, by baptism, we are received into the church of God. By baptism, we are, sent, we are received into the church of God. By baptism, we are set apart from all other peoples and false religions to be entirely committed to him whose mark and emblem we bear. Let's, let's have a look at that. Belgian Confession 34. It's good to look at the other confessions. They speak in such strong language. On the top of column two on 513. By baptism, we are received into the church of God and set apart from all other peoples and false religions to be entirely committed to him whose mark and emblem we bear. This serves as a testimony to us that he will be our God and gracious Father forever. And then if we skip a paragraph... Thus the ministers on their part give us the sacrament and what is visible, but our Lord gives us what is signified by the sacrament, namely invisible gifts and grace, washes and purges and cleanses our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renews our hearts, fills them with all comfort, gives us true assurance of his fatherly goodness, clothes us with a new nature, and takes away the old nature with all its works. So also the Lord's Supper is not a bare sign. We don't only remember what God has done in the past in the cross of Jesus. We do that. We remember and believe. That's true. But God does something to us. In baptism, he plants a standard. His mark and his emblem on us claims us as his own. We are brought into the church, received into the church, Baptism is not just a social thing. Of course, there's a social and communal aspect of the sacraments. Together we share in the communion and the fellowship of the church. But, but as a visiting preacher, I'm going to dare to say this. We should not unnecessarily delay baptism for our infants to accommodate the fellowship of the extended family. We shouldn't do that. It begins to happen that newborn infants come to church. Now, I don't know anything about this community, so I say this with impunity. That infants come to church with their parents, but are not yet baptized because the gathering of the clan can't be arranged that Sunday. So we're placing God's mark and emblem his objective claim upon the child, his public testimony to the world, to the church, and to Satan, his public testimony, this child is mine. I love this child. And this public testimony to the child, you are mine, I love you, and his covenant demand, don't you dare forsake me, are delayed. We make God wait. We should reflect on that, I think. And in the Lord's Supper, he nourishes and refreshes us with heavenly food and drink. Which he doesn't do for those who do not participate in bread and wine. Of no doubt, when youngsters sit in church, when young people have not professed their faith, sit in church, there's a subjective truth in the visible bread and wine. They're taught to remember what Christ has done. But as Jesus says in John 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you don't have life in you. His flesh is real food. 
His blood is real drink. He says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. He nourishes and satisfies our hungry and thirsty souls to eternal life. Christ is really present in the bread and the wine. Really present in the bread and the wine. And, and we sort of chafe at that because we're so taught so strongly in the catechism that the Roman Catholics are wrong. But the Belgian Confession speaks of this in Article 35. In Article 35, on page 514, in the second column, third paragraph, it is beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ did not commend his sacraments to us in vain. Therefore, he works in us all that he represents to us by these holy signs. We don't understand the manner in which he does this, just we don't comprehend the hidden activity of the Spirit of God. Yet we do not go wrong when we say that we eat and drink, what we eat and drink is the true natural body and the true blood of Christ. We don't go wrong when we say that what we eat and drink is the true natural body and the true blood of Christ. However, the manner in which we eat is not by mouth, but in the spirit, by faith. In this way, Jesus remains seated at the right hand of, his God, of God and his Father in heaven, yet he does not cease to communicate himself to us by faith. It is beyond doubt that Jesus Christ does not commend the sacraments to us in vain. He works in us what he represents to us. Christ is present in the preached word, but he's also present by his spirit in water, bread, and wine. By his spirit, the sacraments and the preaching of God's word do more, they do more than remind us of what God has done for us in the past. More than remind us what God has done in the past. Through them, our heavenly Father, through the spirit of his Son, is actually affecting a change of status and condition for God's people. Not just something God did in the past, something God is doing today. And remember, it's not magic, but it's a miracle, a miracle of God's grace that he should come to us in human words, in a basin of water, in broken bread, and a beaker of wine. It's true, and it's real, and it's not magic. It's a miracle, and it's a beautiful mystery. Amen.